Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect and writer Jack Self. Self curated the British Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Architecture Biennale, together with Shumi Bose and Finn Williams, and is founding director of The Real Foundation, a London-based cultural institute and architectural practice established in 2016. Through the foundation and in partnership with the graphic design group OKRM, Self also publishes the contemporary culture magazine Real Review. I met with Self in September at his home office in Belsize Park, where we talked about, among other things, the circumstances around his political awakening, his decision to take time away from architecture to study philosophy and economic theory, and the aesthetics of luxury and power that his work explores. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. started looking into the relationship between real estate and uh, finance and architecture basically begins in um, like December 2010. Uh, I mean, maybe if I go back one step further, the financial crash of 2008 was extremely influential in kind of uh, awakening me to um, a number of things that before then I had really not been aware of. Uh, The scale of social inequality uh, was not something that I, I mean, it was obvious that there was social inequality, but the, the, the actual kind of material scale of it was something I was completely unaware of. Um, and in a way that eventually filters through into your broader thinking, I would say that the Occupy movement was a pretty natural consequence of that in 2011. I mean, 2011, I've written about it before, but it, it's quite an incredible year personally for me, but also for kind of, um, I guess, my age group. Uh, which was a year when there was the Arab Spring, they killed Osama bin Laden, there was a royal wedding. We had here the August riots, which was uh, a process in which um, basically all hell broke loose on in London all the way around the capital for three days. And then you also had uh, very strong student uh, protests and anti-austerity drives and the Occupy movement. And it was really out of that that I began to think, what is the possibility of the agency of the architect? How can I begin to um, you know, have an influence for uh, these values that I think are important? And real estates uh, emerged out of that, or the, the idea of producing this um, particular project emerged out of that. But it, it effectively set the course for um, all of my work that followed in the, you know, up until now. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it was a real formative moment for you, and it's something that you've discussed elsewhere at length. Um, And I guess for me, the question is, what happened after your involvement with the Occupy movement? It seems like things changed for you in terms of the outlook you had on what your involvement in architecture might be. Hmm. Yeah, um, the very first protest that I went on was... Uh, in 2001, uh, early 2002, after 9-11, there was um, a threat that the U.S. would invade. I'm, I'm so sorry, it must have been the end of 2002 or even early 2003. There was a million people that crossed the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is where I was living at the time, in protest to the war in Iraq or the prospect of a war in Iraq. And the last protest... I mean, I, I tagged along at an anti-Brexit protest recently, but that's only because 
a friend of mine had never been to a protest before. So we went through this kind of choreography of activism in which you kind of turn up with uh, every other middle-class person in the city and you perform it. You know, it's a vital um, function of democracy, but at the same time, let's say, the possibility for creating um, structural social change through protest, uh, I began to question that for myself. I still believe that it's possible to, to create social change through um, individual and collective activism and co collective action. But as an architect, I realized that the scale and particularly the time scale of architecture is not one which is conducive to that type of immediate effect, right? If I wanted to pursue that as a strategy, I would rather go into politics or uh, go into um, perhaps economics or some other field or become a public figure like a writer or, you know, someone who can be a pundit on the news shows and advocate your arguments that way. Um, but I decided I really wanted to focus on the material uh, world and on the built environment and therefore it necessitated a slightly different approach. I mean, you're dealing with capitalist interests which are entrenched in ways that are uh, terrifying. Um, and it's very, very hard. I mean, direct confrontation is almost never successful. Um, I just want to like step back for a bit and talk more about how, in what way specifically, Occupy was formative for you in terms of like, uh, I guess, re reinventing yourself. Hmm. I read somewhere that I mean, at one point you had well, long hair and a beard. Oh yeah, and. Um, uh, your wardrobe wasn't as uh, constrained as it is now. But it yes. seemed like there were some really conscious decisions you made at a certain point, probably following this like period of political mm -hmm. awakening yeah. about how you were going to be in the world, how you, you were going to present yourself, and the kind of thinking you were going to start pursuing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a propensity for certain forms of fundamentalism in as much as um, the world is very chaotic and disordered. And so to someone whose mind naturally um, kind of looks for order, which is maybe one of the reasons why people become architects, is that they're attempting to kind of um, reject the chaos of the world and create these sort of artificial uh, structures of order. Um, and I, what I would say is that um, up until my early 20s, like all people, uh, one doesn't really know one's own mind very well. I didn't know uh, what I liked, what I didn't like, what I wanted, what I hoped to achieve in life. These were not things that were uh, kind of very clear. And what the Occupy movement um, I mean, it wasn't just the involvement with the Occupy movement. I've always been very interested in ideas of the contemporary and ideas of understanding the contemporary and understanding what the mood in the room is in terms of the kind of zeitgeist of, of, of the society that I live in. And the year 2011 made it extremely clear to me uh, what the trajectory of society was, what my responsibilities as a citizen to this country were, what my responsibilities and obligations to other human beings were uh, and particularly uh, and this is something which um, which I only was able to articulate later as I began to develop the vocabulary around it but of course uh, I mean since I was a, a teenager I've always had a strong interest in feminism and gender equality um, between the period 2008-2012, which I guess represents me being like 20 through to 24, um, was also a moment of realization about things like uh, structural and institutional racism, about cognitive bias, and about the fact, coming to terms with the fact, or coming to recognize the fact that um, through no choosing of my own, I had drawn the ticket that around which all of society was designed. I mean, this subjectivity of a, a white, heterosexual, middle-class male, you know, that's what the 20th century was about. And when they spoke about modernism, that's who they thought modernism was for. Uh, and so I began to go on what I guess you might call an intersectional journey. 
um, in which I began to question, and I, you know, I've never felt guilty about, uh, uh, about owning that subjectivity. On the other hand, I do feel that once you recognize it, you have to assume responsibility for it. And you have to also ask yourself, given that I occupy this position of privilege and power, um, how can I use that in order to advance uh, the causes of others who, uh, it, it, since I feel that this injustice is by its nature wrong? And then, <laughs> then, then, you know, and I guess shaving my head and uh, choosing a uniform in a way were uh, side aspects of that. I mean, I wouldn't dwell too much on the sort of monastic quality, um, except to say that uh, it's very easy to forget what it is you're doing with your life. And it's very easy to see mission creep uh, seep in. And I shave my head every, between every two and four days. And every time I do, I think about what it is. I take it as a moment for reflection. You know, what is it that I'm doing this week? Are there ways that I could be using my power to advance these causes, which I think are important? Am I doing the best job? And at, most of all, am I sincerely trying to live a life in the service of others? Um, which is a, is a terrible conflict because, uh, you know, in order to amass the capital and power which is required in order to create the type of structural change I want to see. Uh, I mean, you have to pursue power and influence and money. On the other hand, how do you do that in such a way uh, that you don't, um, that you, that you don't um, associate that power and money directly with yourself and that you don't treat it as a form of extension of your own ego? Uh, you know, how do you instrumentalize your own uh, self. That's, I think, a question that I've been interested in for a number of years. In some other interview, you mentioned that you trained yourself to speak in full sentences. And um, so not only the form of your uh, diction, but the formality of it. I don't think I've ever met anyone as serious as you. <laughs> and uh, I find it astounding, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not all, you know, seri seriousness, uh, no, but that's, I would like to think. No, no, I think it's just... To I mean, me, maybe I am a fairly humorless human being, who knows? Yeah, but I think, in a way, that's really exciting to me, because, mm. I mean, I'm the same age as you. Mm. I have, obviously, a lot of friends in architecture um, and design, and I feel like the palpable kind of consensus is one of um, defeat. Mm. And yet, when I read your work and I listen to your lectures, I get the feeling that uh, all is not lost. <laughs> no, I think that that's really key. I mean, there's this uh, 1970s um, astronomer who I really like, uh, Carl Sagan. Actually, I'll give you another side note briefly, which is um, Bill Bailey, who's a British comedian, he opens one of his uh, shows by saying, you know, the world um, is, you know, spinning at a certain speed. It's at a certain distance from the sun. But of course, the sun is expanding. You know, the sun's going to continue to expand. And in about, uh, you know, two billion years, the sun will have expanded and collapsed on itself, evaporating the seas off the surface of the earth and turning everything on it to dust, destroying all the places that humans have ever lived and, uh, you know, anywhere that we hold dear just to put the show in some context for you. And I've always thought that's a very nice way to start a kind of comedy set because there is, on the one hand, a very serious job to be done. And on the other hand, um, it's all fairly inconsequential anyway, if you take a lot, I mean, in the long run, all things end in death anyway. Um, but in a, in a sense, the quality of the life is, is what's important, in my opinion. Um, I'm very interested in the idea that the, the, the beauty of the act is in the act of it being done, not necessarily in its consequence. But what I would say about Carl Sagan is um, that, uh, you know, he says you must approach the world with skepticism and imagination both. And for me, in order to have that, that idea of what in architecture we call the project, the, the proposition, the proposal, the suggestion for how things could be better, in order to do that, you also have to not uh, cover your eyes or um, reject reality. And therefore, I think some people would see a lot of the work I do as being extremely negative and depressing. Um, I try to be as realist as I can. And I try to, uh, therefore, you know, not shy away from 
um, describing particular types of uh, power violence and other types of inequalities. On the other hand, within every condition, there must always be a proposition and proposal. Otherwise, you would be truly defeatist. Um, and I would say it's in the nature of the architect to, to do that because if you don't come up with a project or a proposal or a proposition, then you don't have a design or a building or anything. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, that, yeah, that type of po positivity within even the most desperate of situations, even when you're being even at the most critical, is extremely important. Before you felt able or confident to make propositions within architecture, you stepped back and studied philosophy. You did a master's of philosophy in, I hope I'm getting this right, the morality of neoliberal economic theory. I did, yes. And so what exactly prompted that, that swerve away? Um, I mean, for me, it was all part of a single continuity. Uh, and I was making propositions and proposals before that. I mean, things that I don't normally speak about are, uh, for example, um, uh, I think anyone who's discontent with their own situation always makes a certain number of predictable moves. The first is they leave home. Uh, and when you choose to leave home, as opposed to being kind of forced out by other circumstances, it means that you can never really return home. You, you enter into a state of having to now find a new home. And that, I think, is quite uh, an important condition. Um, when I left Australia, I left at two weeks' notice. I moved to France, where I lived for a year and a half, and I thought I would never return to the Anglo-Saxon world. I learned fluent French. And, you know, I had an apartment, I had a girlfriend, I had a job I liked. I stopped speaking English completely. And it was only through a kind of quirk of my job that took me back to London that I returned here. Um, the, in order to find a grounding in London and be able to form some type of life here, I joined uh, something which had just started called Twitter. And I began to see if there were other people in the city that, um, whose work I might want to follow. And that led me into uh, a, a sphere of orbit that would eventually take me to the AA. But during that time, uh, at the Architectural Association, during that time I started a uh, blog, which was also very popular back then. This is Millennium People. This is Millennium People, which was all about uh, exploring ideas of the contemporary and the zeitgeist. Um, you know, Millennium people naturally led into a student publication I did at the AA called Fulcrum, which naturally led into the current publication I edit uh, called Real Review. So for me, they're all part of a kind of continuous project. And uh, the divergence into philosophy, um, I, I couldn't afford to keep studying at the AA. I lost my bursary and, um, and I knew that in order to complete my degree, I was going to have to work very hard and also really kind of game the system. I was going to need to up my level in terms of how I approached this educational quandary that I was in. Um, and so I uh, knew how to web program. I did a lot of website design. I did corporate branding. I did anything that anyone would give me for a year. And I went to um, night school because the master's program that I took, although it was run... Um, between a number of different universities, UCL uh, and within what's called the University of London group, it was administered by Birkbeck, which is a night school. And so that's where I did my master's. And I did it basically so that I didn't go mad while I was working, uh, you know, like 16-hour days the rest of the time. Um, I developed um, an amphetamine addiction, uh, which was awful, but also in a way allowed me to reach that level of productivity. Um, I have very bad sinuses and the prescription for that is something called pseudoephedrine, which if you take in a high enough dose is basically speed. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, these are kind of like the consequences of, let's say, the brutality of capitalism and contemporary education at work. I really would not have spoken about these things even a few years ago because they're, um, you know, the, the kind of trajectory of how one builds one's career very rarely uh, exposes what's behind the curtain in terms of how that's done. But the, but the master's degree was very much motivated by the idea that I was interested in this field. It was clearly going to be very important for the spirit of our times and for defining my own generation. But I really knew nothing about finance and I knew you know, nothing about economic theory. But I felt that there was something wrong with it. 
And therefore, the idea of concentrating on morality took me into a school of philosophy rather than focusing on neoliberal economic theory, which would have taken me into an economic school. Um, but the philosophers were not happy that I brought economics into their school because morality and ethics are really complex subjects in philosophy and they don't do well when you're trying to match that up against some of the more complex ideas of macroeconomics. And so there's this phrase that uh, you'll probably sigh about when I mention form follows finance. And I wonder if we can kind of help draw a line between the f- the work in philosophy you were doing and the way you were carrying that back into architecture. Sure. Philosophy and, and, and economics. Sure. Uh, I mean, the phrase, I thought it was genius coming up with this phrase. Turned out that many other people had come up with this phrase before <laughs> me, that I, it was not my own invention, sadly. But much like Shakespeare uh, and his appropriation of, um, for example, biblical phrases, which are now attributed to Shakespeare, my hope is that by repeating it enough, I'll eventually take the credit for it. (laughs) Um, But the concept of form following finance is, of course, a play on the modernist idea of form following function. Form following function means that you design a building and that the aesthetics of the building, uh, how it looks, is not about in any way um, adding an anything which is superfluous. So all ideas of style and ornament are stripped off the building. Everything is about the function of the building. Now, I'm a huge critic of functionalism because it's extremely deterministic. I mean, as a slight side note, I would say, for example, you know, I used to live in an apartment which had a galley kitchen. The galley kitchen was optimized for the single housewife during the day to make a meal for her family. If you get a group of Italian friends in there who are used to cooking in a social environment, it's impossible for anyone to get past each other. So that type of idea of functionalism is always very relative to functional for who and what type of power are you expressing. Anyway, that's a slight aside. But the form following finance was very much um, motivated by understanding if one takes, if as an architect one takes control over the means of financing and the way in which capital is sought and raised, then one can have some uh, influence over the output. Um, And therefore the role of the architect needs to extend beyond, you know, resolving the demands of the developer or the client and actually going further upstream. I mean, it's something that I've struggled with consistently. At the moment, I'm attempting to do a development project, which if it succeeds, I will never go hungry again. However, a part of that difficulty is even in the early discussions, I can see that I am being slowly edged out by financial specialists that I'm bringing in on the team and um, that the partnership itself is, you know, a constant struggle against the forces of capital. And so now I'm going to have to make a decision. Am I going to continue and pursue this project in the knowledge that it may not be possible to achieve all of the outcomes that I'm hoping for? You know, for example, is it enough that the outcome is a low rental housing project? Or is it, as I wanted, a low rental housing project where the individuals also have the possibility of buying back shares to form a cooperative? Mm. Um, And I mean, that's a high level of detail as an example. But basically, once you start talking about the terms and conditions of a mortgage, uh, you know, the, the, the period of time over which a loan is taken, how much interest you pay on it, um, you begin to have real impacts on the type of architecture that's produced. I mean, maybe the best example I would give is that in France, mortgage rates are uh, monthly payments are fixed. Um, when the rate changes, the duration of the mortgage changes. So in most Anglo-Saxon countries in North America and Britain, um, your mortgage is pegged to an interest rate. Interest rate change, you used to be paying £1,000 a month, now you're paying £2,000 a month. Everyone defaults, everyone gets evicted. You know, subprime mortgage crisis. In France, you'll always pay £1,000 a month but the rate goes up from 4.5 to 6.25. And instead of having a nine-year mortgage, now you've got a 14-year mortgage. That type of logic, I think, is really important because if your mortgage is flexible in that way, you have to build a different type of house. You know, if you have a 25-year fixed-term mortgage, your house will be designed with planned obsolescence that the whole thing falls apart after 25 years. That's the logic of the building industry.
go back for a second and talk more about this uh, housing project that mm. you're working on. Mm. Is this is with the Real Foundation? Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I've heard you speak before about the Real Foundation is essentially a mechanism for um, preventing mission creep, which is a kind of anxiety you mentioned before mm. uh, in our conversation. Mm. It's a way of keeping things real for you, I guess. Um, and yet it sounds like you're starting to have to make some concessions, um, which this is interesting to me, mm. the kind of friction there between the idealism that we set out with in our careers as architects yeah. and this creep towards the inevitable um, you know, letting go. I'm suspicious of absolutists and purists because it means that they must necessarily refuse to engage in certain ways. Um, when you have a zero line compromise, you basically become Islamic State. I mean, there's not much, I, I mean, it's an extreme example, but when you, or you end up with the type of Brexit negotiations that we're seeing towards the end of 2018 between Theresa May and the EU, in which uh, neither side, and frankly, I wouldn't expect it from the EU, but particularly from the British Prime Minister, there is no desire whatsoever for a compromise in spite of the evidence that that seems to be a really dumb idea. So I'm very suspicious of people that are hardline in that sense. Then the question becomes uh, one of what E.R. Weissman would call the lesser of all possible evils. Um, he tells a story in his book, uh, which is a very, of that title, which is a, a very uh, good story. And uh, particularly for me, um, I appreciate very much uh, a certain type of theological writing. I'm an I'm a atheist, I'm not religious at all, but it, it holds many interesting uh, values. And St. Augustine um, was the first to begin to think about shades of right and wrong. Basically, his logic was, well, the devil can't be as powerful as God, because that would make no sense. Therefore, there cannot be absolute evil. There can only be absolute good, which is God, and the furthest possible degree away from good. And that's what evil is. Hence the interpretation of the Bible as saying hell is like darkness beyond the reach of God. Therefore, that begins to enter in. Well, okay, is stealing your neighbor's goat worse than having sex with his wife? How do they fall on a relative moral scale? And uh, this culminated, of course, in the Irish system of um, kind of uh, compensation for morality where they had an entire ledger in which breaking another person's finger was considered twice as bad as you know breaking their whatever as you know knocking over their fence for example um, and this entire gradation of morality is then like you know it becomes very very hard to say at what point something becomes definitively uh, not good um, or let me put this another way Within the Real Foundation's um, charter, the tenth and final point is that Real will engage positively with those in positions of power. It's probably the one that we've received most criticism for and maybe the most controversial of them mm. because uh, people say, well, no, you shouldn't uh, engage. There are some conditions where you shouldn't engage. To me, that was the most interesting. I think, it, I think <laughs> that there... What I like to leave open the possibility of, I'm open to the idea that we will engage with anyone, or, although if there is no clear possibility for agency, then the project must stop immediately. And if a critical measure of agency is lost, I always reserve the right to terminate a project at any point. And I think being able to hit a kill switch is what keeps you from get, having missions creep. Uh, you know, if you start working with developers and you make some concessions initially and then further down the line there are more concessions, then the project at, at a certain point may need to be terminated and I reserve that right. Mm. This makes me want to talk about a point that I'm worried will send us in all, all kinds of directions, but I'm also interested in following whatever tangent it throws up. Uh, I want to talk about luxury because to me uh, it seems like it is a total luxury to be able to, at some point in the duration of a project, terminate to just it. terminate it. Yeah. Um, so that's one, that's one line of luxury that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also noticing this, uh, this Venetian rug. Uh, it's not a, 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 a Persian, Persian, Persian rug, rug, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. It came from a deceased estate auction. 
And the, the reason I bring it up is because in your work and the way you talk about your work, you're keenly aware of an aesthetics of luxury. Um, and you're very interested in manipulating that or subverting it or utilizing it in a way to further the goals of your, your, your project. Hmm. Uh, this is in particular, I'm thinking of the Ingot, which I guess is at the center of this real estate's publication. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the second uh, luxury aspect. tangent aspect of it. Um, and then I guess there's a broader abstract sense of luxury or maybe I'm not saying this right, but I know that you've interviewed Rem Coolhouse and his associates who are responsible for, you know, OMA's collaborations with Prada. Mm-hmm. And in that interview, I think there's a real keen awareness of and desire to understand mm. a certain kind of relationship to power mm-hmm. manifest through uh, um, interpretations and expressions of luxury. Mm. So I'll let you take your pick in terms of where you want to go with the idea of luxury, but I just want to... We can move through all three sequentially. Let's do it. Um, in, the, in the first sense, uh, the logic of creating a, uh, an architectural firm which is structured as a foundation, a foundation which has a clear social purpose. I mean, we can only take on projects which promote inclusivity, democracy, and equalities of many kinds, amongst them but not limited to... Uh, equality of race, uh, gender, class, wealth, and space. Uh, Therefore, any project that doesn't meet those criteria cannot be accepted. In order to maintain the luxury of terminating a project, you need to be financially independent. Therefore, the financial independence of this firm is a huge priority. Um, The way that I've pursued that up until now has not been ideal they've been extremely high-risk models of business. For example, Real Review, which is our quarterly contemporary culture magazine, was started using 25,000 pounds of Kickstarter money. The business model was effectively a Ponzi scheme in as much as that new members piled in money and that money was used to do things like buy uh, paper. Um, the, the paper that we, that we chose actually is very, very cheap to print on. But in order to get that cheapness, you had to buy in enough to, uh, to print 10,000 issues. So you had to have capital in advance in order to get uh, the reduction in cost. And we know from other environments, like you know, buying two gallons of shampoo is cheaper than buying a single bottle of shampoo. Um, those types of economies of scale are not normally open to people when they're starting on a new project. It's only more expensive to do something than less. So trying to circumvent that required a business model which was very high risk. If Real Review didn't hit a circulation of at least 3,000 by the end of the first year, it would fold, everyone would lose their money, and I would look like a total asshole. Uh, <laughs> that's high risk, right? That's not a good way of running a business. Um, however, the risk was considered by me to be proportionate in order to arrive at a point that we have now, which is that Real Review is totally self-sufficient financially in spite I mean I don't get paid and neither do the art directors who are also the partners in it so the creative labor that produces it is is not uh, is free is this OKRM yeah but the but the magazine itself pays its way and it pays a modest fee to all the writers who are involved in it and hopefully as its circulation improves it will become more financially sustainable but the point of that is there you've got a publication which has no investors uh, no vested interests and no advertisers. So you've created something which is a truly independent um, voice for criticism. I can write about whatever the hell I want and I can invite other people to be as critical as they want about whatever they want. And that type of, in my opinion, freedom of press is crucial. Um, and so that, that's a type of luxury which in a way only comes through financial independence. And that's a model that I'm trying to replicate in all of our projects. And hopefully, you know, my ideal model would be to have like a hedge fund, the proceeds of which, like a hedge fund which only invests in like renewable energy, for example, it needs to be morally ethical as well. It can't be like mining in Indonesia, but Papua New Guinea or something. But um, if you can establish that, you know, the proceeds from that would finance something else. And then you get a firewall that exists between the origin of the money and the use of the money. I mean, that's the essence of philanthropy. Although a lot of the time, the money that's used in philanthropy also comes from shitty things like arms deals and so on. 
Um, but yeah, that, that's the logic of that luxury, which is you know financial independence. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you the freedom to think about what would make you happy. That's the first form of luxury. I'll move more swiftly through the others. Uh, the second form of luxury has to do with uh, perceptions of taste and class and particularly overcoming certain types of barriers. I mean, for example, if you do social housing, there is by its nature a kind of class snobbery in Britain where there is an extremely strong structured uh, class system. Um, which I've never understood. I mean, I've never understood why the British accept the aristocracy. They seem to me completely pointless as a social class. They really contribute nothing I mean, economically or culturally to the country, uh, which is maybe controversial to say, but I mean, with the exception of perhaps a very small uh, niche group who, of the royal family who contribute towards uh, tourism. Um, but I think we would be better off as a society annexing their wealth. <laughs> Nonetheless, <laughs> Um, you know, it's, I think, really key to try and use the uh, symbols of those different classes um, in order to achieve, uh, you know, uh, the pursuit of a classless society. Um, there were two types of communists at the start of the communist revolution, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks thought that everyone should be working class and the proletariat. And the Mensheviks thought that everyone should be bourgeois, that the ideal state of society would be for everyone to be middle class, mostly engaged in intellectual and leisure pursuits, and uh, that all of the work in society would be done by automation. Um, of course, the Bolsheviks proceeded to kill all the Mensheviks, and that kind of ended that dream as part of uh, the USSR. However, in um, contemporary discussions around ideas like high-tech communism and high-tech uh, luxury communism, we're beginning to see a return of, of that idea that if technology is allowed to play its course in a particular way, it could make us all no longer have to work. I mean, that is a dream which has actually existed since before the Second World War and was thought previously to be the logical conclusion of capitalism. I mean, if you go back to the 1950s and look at these adverts for like the atomic wife's kitchen uh, equipment, the idea was that in the future, you know, factory automation would mean that we have to work less and automation in the home would mean that we basically live lives mainly in which we're paid well to not work very much. Um, that cycle of leisure and, and labor saving uh, through technology and through rising wages and capitalism was horribly diverted by a counter-cultural revolution in the form of neoliberalism. I think it is naive to think that the future of AI, the future of work, and the future of autonomous systems is in any way naturally going to lead to a reduction in work and an improvement in the quality of life of most people on the planet. It is almost definitely going to be uh, expropriated by an existing elite and used to concentrate even more wealth in their hands and to impoverish and indeed enslave the majority of the species, those who aren't wiped out by, of course, the forces of global warming in the 21st century. That's the trajectory of humanity, and that's, in a sense, the struggle of our time. Therefore, the Persian rug becomes a minor symbol in the uh, pursuit of trying to advocate for uh, a future in which, you know, maybe it would be nice if everyone had enough money to be comfortable. And that's basically the standard of living that I'm trying to promote through the work that I do. This is totally astounding to hear. It's like um, there's an encyclopedic context for something as mundane as a rug. Mm. But all physical objects have uh, many layers of symbolism and reference, and of course they all have histories. And it's always been of interest to me to understand how things ended up the way they were, and did they have to be that way, or are there alternatives that were open to us in the past, and are they still open to us now? Um, that's why I'm always so interested in, in the critique and the proposition. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, maybe the third form of luxury that you were... Uh, wait, what was, what was the third form again? I think it was more to do oh, with... Oh yeah, your... to do with power and, yeah. and Prada. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, Prada is an amazing example because, first of all, Prada is run by Mutia Prada, who is a feminist Marxist. She never wanted to run Prada. It was foisted upon her by her family. And uh, she was really given no choice. 
Um, her first innovation was to create this idea of the black nylon bag with dimpled leather, which is now their kind of, I mean, black nylon has become their kind of ubiquitous and trademark material. At the time, of course, it was a very, very cheap material. And what Mucha Prada recognized through her Marxist critique of capitalism was that um, luxury has nothing to do with the quality or price of a product and everything to do with its social perception. Therefore, you can create a $10,000 Swarovski crystal ball gown that looks cheap. And you can take a piece of plastic off the street and you can wrap it around a beautiful form and photograph it in specific lighting conditions and create something which is extremely desirable and luxurious. Therefore, if luxury is a perception, uh, the play of Prada as a brand has been purely about how you take something which is cheap and make it expensive and vice versa. Uh, I'm really interested in that type of play because in the fluctuation of that social perception, there's the possibility of recontextualizing and reappropriating other things. Um, you know, if you're trying to create an aesthetic which is driven around uh, you know, a classless society, that seems to me an extremely relevant strategy that one could deploy. Um, and so I'm very interested in, of course, Prada's approach to luxury in that way. And I'm very interested to see how someone like Rem Koolhaas and OMA have then, uh, I mean, he, his work has been massively influenced by the relationship that um, OMA has established with Prada. And in some ways you could describe OMA as, as having translated a lot of those ideas into, certainly in terms of their material explorations, directly into the world of architecture. And I think that there's a lot more research and a lot more um, uh, work to be done in that field. Uh, the risk is, of course, that it becomes a trope, which unfortunately many of the forms of materiality that go along with it have become tropish. But I still would like to think that there's room for uh, you know, further exploration uh, in that field. I know that we're getting near the end of the conversation. I feel like there's still something else I want to find out about. And it has mm. to do with the, the, the form of thought you're exhibiting right now. The form of? <laughs> the form of the, the thought you're exhibiting. Like yeah. There, uh, to me, is an intense amount of rigor mm. in the way that uh, ideas are contextualized and uh, precedents are kind of brought into play. Mm. And it just makes me wonder about, like I don't ask people enough about like routine mm. and how you go about um, initiating yourself. Mm. Mm. Very tough question because uh, it's easier to appear coherent than it is to be consistent. Um, my routine is less rigorous than you might think. It involves bursts of extreme concentration and extreme, almost at times, superhuman labor. And it also is counterbalanced by periods of total inactivity and even willful wasting of time. Um, as I've got older, I've come to trust my intuition and instinct a lot more than I did when I was younger. I always used to try and reason through things. Now I have more faith in myself. In, uh, you know, and self-confidence is very important in that. Um, because when you're younger, you think that your natural gut instinct is going to be somehow impulsive and therefore should be you know, considered again. As I get older, um, I've learned to trust my intuition more. Presumably, as I get even older, I'll come to trust my intuition so implicitly that reason will go out the window and I'll start to make awful decisions, <laughs> which is what you often see amongst old people. You know, they think they know best and can't be reasoned with. Um, however, you know, my, my routine is, is uh, in that sense, highly precarious and constantly in flux. The only thing which is really, uh, I mean, in the last year and a half, I became truly exhausted by the amount of work that I was doing. It just wasn't possible to always be working. Not unless you want to continue, um, you know, smoking heavily and, uh, you know, t taking pseudoephedrine and using all of the um, various, uh, I mean, there are so many now exotic drugs which one could uh, take, modafinil or other type, or Adderall or, you know, I would really prefer not to do this. Um, and therefore, I have to accept that there is an upper limit on my productivity. 
in order to leverage that, I'm now trying to create structures in which my agency can be transferred into others. That is to say, by through collaborative project, in which the project itself is not reliant on only myself and my own abilities, because that necessarily limits you in what you can do. I mean, it's not, if you want to use a tech term, scalable labor. Um, and so that's kind of where I've got in terms of how I think about my own work. Mm. In terms of how I think about a project, I always think about what the meaning of the project is, uh, what the meaning of the question is that someone has asked me. Um, I think probably this is a more personal interview than I would normally give, but it's also because I'm in my own home. Um, I was diagnosed as autistic as a child. I struggled a lot with communication and with uh, socializing when I was a child, up until I was really a late teenager. And, and so uh, a lot of that uh, um, and the kind of intense overcompensation that the mind uh, does in order to work out what's going on. I mean, I often miss a lot of nuance. Um, I often misunderstand what people say because I hear the words, but the facial expression or the tone doesn't match up with what it is that they're saying. That's why I like irony, because it's very funny to me. Um, but uh, in, in that sense, I think a lot of the reason why when someone comes to me with a project or comes to me with a proposition, or in, in which I can even see a particular sphere of relations between individuals, entities, and power and agency as it exists already in the world, uh, you know, I, I have to go through a process of abstracting it almost till it becomes like a game in order to understand what the possibility for alteration within that might be. And then from that, I will come up with the proposition. Um, there's a good uh, kind of metaphor for this that's in a book by a German um, journalist written in the early 30s. It's called um, uh, Commanders in the Field is the, is the English translation of the book. And it's about this uh, German... Um, journalist who goes to the USSR and looks at communal farms under Soviet model. Um, but he gives this metaphor in which he says, you know, in order to become a commander of the field, um, when you go into battle, you need to elevate yourself above the field and you need to understand all of the different units that are on the battlefield so that the archers have certain abilities and the cavalry have other abilities and they all have different interests and the battle itself is a playing out of those different abilities and interests and agendas between the different units. But it's only when you have some remove and you're able to see a large scope and understand all those different entities that you can understand that maybe your own contribution to the battle is very small, but it, it can be very precise at a very precise moment in order to tip the agency of those others. That's so interesting to me because um there's a sense of like objectivity and acuteness mm. in critique mm. that I feel like isn't always there at the outset of projects like this. And mm. you talked a lot about um, belief being a process of discovery. Mm. Um, and there's a kind of mm. phrase in writing about, I write to know what I think. Mm. Yeah, very much. And so very that much. always at the outset, there's a sense of not knowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's completely true. In yeah. the course of this discussion, I've said things which I agree with. And I often, when I hear myself talk, think, I agree the hell out of what he's saying. But also sometimes I say things where I'm like, ooh, swing and a miss, buddy. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you, through conversation particularly, writing is a very good one for trying to understand what you believe. But generally, I find discussion and dialogue much better because the necessity of speaking, when someone asks you a question and you have to respond, you, and you have no control over the question, you have no control over the subject that's being asked, um, it forces you to say something and your subconscious mind comes out with something. And uh, it's like, from whence did this belief stem? I must have had it within me before the question was asked, but I didn't have access to it. And so I find that process really, really interesting. And in that sense, I've come to indulge more in the idea of, uh, let's say, quote unquote, wasting time or non-productivity, willful non-productivity in which I purposefully am not working in order to allow my subconscious mind to process what the hell's going on and maybe come to some opinions of its own. Because I presume that's where most of the human intelligence is located. I mean, my conscious mind is a kind of an asshole. 
So I'm assuming that all of the powerful work goes on somehow behind a curtain that I don't have access to. Uh, that's what I would assume. But the, the kind of meta point, I guess, would be to say that uh, the way that I conceive of my own agency in this abstracted form sits in parallel with my experience in the world of being. Um, the way I would describe that is to say, uh, you know, lives are very short. I'm uh, like you, uh, you know, early 30s. Um, I've had three decades. I probably have another, at most, five decades of productive labor, beyond which, I mean, probably less, maybe three decades of actual real productivity. Uh, th so there's not much you can do. And, and then it's over. You die. You're done. And uh, in that sense, your contribution to society is necessarily already written into the pages of a history or not written and forgotten. Um, but it, it is already complete as a, as a your, your, the time of your life is an object in itself, which kind of like a javelin is thrown through space. And that's you. Um, that for me sits in, in to that is a kind of interesting game to play at the level of um, career, at the level of the accumulation of wealth and power, at the ability to exercise agency in, in order to pursue certain types of moral and political agendas. That's cool, that's fine. But actually, given another alternative, and this is why I would like to live in this type of world, given a real alternative, I would prefer to do nothing and not work all day. I would prefer to basically scratch my balls and ideally go swimming and sit on, float on my back and look at the horizon. That's pretty much all I really want to do with my life. But unfortunately, the world is, has not, I mean, humans, for whatever reason, have decided to construct a kind of social abstraction, which makes that, um, I mean, it's not impossible to do, but it, I think it would be less fulfilling than I might think it is now, uh, you know. I can um, become a monk or something, but it seems to me like a, a relinquishment of the obligation to struggle. The, I guess there's like a kind of taboo around asking people about uh, their families mm -hmm. in, in situations like this. Mm. Um, but this kind of sense of urgency and initiative mm. that you're explaining um, in terms of like cultural critique mm. must must have some context in um, or reference to uh, certain people you may have grown up around. So mm. I don't know if you are interested in talking about that, uh, mm. if it is in fact influential for you. Uh, but, um, um, I mean, it's, it's definitely influential. As the poem goes, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. So, I mean, 100%. Um, I mean, I do have a sense of humor. It's just not a very pronounced one. Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, um, you know, I would say the biggest influences from my childhood are from my father's side, he's a hopeless romantic and desperate optimist. He also was in advertising in the 1980s, which if you know anything about advertising in the 1980s, will tell you a lot about the fact that like some Eastern European ex-Soviet countries, a lot of my, you know, those sort of ex-Soviet Eastern European countries where the currency and stamps last longer than the country. Uh, you know, a lot of my father's companies, the t-shirts and mugs, the merchandise has outlived the uh, corporate agenda, let's say. Um, and he's been married, I think, uh, what, uh, four times now, four times. And he still believes in, in love and romance and that type of uh, optimism in face of, uh, you know, um, sequential lack of success, I find uh, inspiring, frankly. Uh, that, that constant um, search and dedication towards something is wonderful. In the case of my mom, she, is, um, she was a journalist and runs a, uh, um, a property company. She's actually a registered real estate agent, which, um, as is now my younger brother, which is kind of seems to me like really odd in terms of the decision that I made about the direction to go with my career. But she's a remarkable woman. The two things that I think came most prominently in terms of affecting the way in which I think, of course, she faced a lot of discrimination as a brilliant and very attractive 
uh, and very intelligent young woman in Australia of the 1970s. There was a lot of prejudice against her. And she succeeded in spite of the many barriers, uh, patriarchal barriers that were put in her way. And after my parents divorced, uh, we lived in a small town in Australia where she was also, I mean, there were no other divorced families in the town. No one had ever met a divorcee before. There was a huge amount of suspicion that she was constantly trying to steal other people's husbands. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, uh, 19th century in its approach. And so I saw firsthand how uh, the subjectivity of um, women are treated extremely differently from those of men. And that, and of course, she is herself uh, quite a strong feminist, which was very important for that as a framework. Because once you understand the feminist critique, you begin to immediately, you know, I began to ask myself questions about indigenous Australians. What the hell was going on? Why was there this intense racism? You know, why, were they, why, why was life expectancy for Aboriginal men 30 years younger than non-Aboriginal men? Um, so that journey came from there. And she also is uh, kind of like my father, remarkable entrepreneur in as much as I think, um, I think both of them have been motivated by unhappiness in their own childhoods and therefore attempted to manifest that as um, a fierce sense of independence and self-reliance, both emotionally and financially. And, uh, you know, and that's basically me, right? I'm just a confluence of, I'm the natural product of both my parents ideologically and in other senses. Um, you know, my father's attraction to a uh, kind of uh, gently conservative uh, world of capitalism and my mother's uh, desire for equality for all. You get me. Um, I have an uncle who is a writer as well. He's a, he's a proper intellectual in as much as he you know, went to Oxford and has all the, the degrees and reputation which is required. And of course, he's a, he's a brilliant novelist and brilliant writer. For my money, he's probably one of the greatest, um, uh, you know, users of the English language of our time. Um, however, I didn't really know him as a child. I only met him when I was in my early 20s, really, and formed a relationship with him. And we were both extremely surprised by how similar we were to each other. And that leads me to the conclusion after having read my grandfather's unpublished autobiography and notes from my great-grandfather that either there's a kind of possibility for genetic personality traits or um, the influence of family on your position in the world uh, and the way in which you approach the concept of your life is uh, there's a kind of massive cultural shadow that falls through families more than I think we, we might um, suspect. But when I hear you know, stories of my great-grandfather and how he behaved, it could be even the language that he uses and the way he thinks through problems is almost identical to me. And yet here's a man who lived almost a century in advance of me. So I, yeah, I would, uh, I would conclude that by saying that I'm not such a fierce proponent of the idea of individuality and personality as being somehow unique. I mean, I think we are basically pastiches of other people that preceded and, and surrounded. I mean, basically, if you want to talk about nature versus nurture, I think that if it is nature, it must be that certain family, familial traits are passed genetically. We don't know if that's the case or not. Or in terms of nurture, that uh, you know, we have much less opportunity to form true autonomy and individuality than I think we think we have. Yeah. I think we should end it there. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jack, for your time. You're very welcome. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Colleen. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Jack Self, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.